Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. In this episode, we are joined by Kate Henney. Kate is a senior research fellow at the Regulatory Institutions Network, an interdisciplinary research center housed at the Australian National University. Kate is the author of the recently published book, Testing for Athlete Citizenship, Regulating Doping and Sex in Sport. Kate joins us to discuss her experience conducting multi-sited fieldwork. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. We're here today to talk about conducting multi-sided fieldwork. If you were to introduce this type of methodological approach to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you describe it? Well, I guess on the surface it seems quite simple, really, fieldwork requiring multiple sites. And by fieldwork, I mean the traditions that are usually ethnographic, which aim to understand social dynamics in kind of their naturalistic settings and in everyday life. So this requires pursuing in-depth knowledge through a sustained participant observation and engagement, interviewing, and in my case, quite a bit of archival research. But what makes what I think makes multi-sided fieldwork distinct is that it's an approach used to get at concerns and research questions that span across sites. So unlike traditional notions of ethnography or how we tend to traditionally think of ethnography, um, that usually focuses on one site in great depth and limits its focus to those localized dynamics, this kind of fieldwork seeks to understand connections between sites and how sites are nested in larger systems affected by globalized dynamics. So perhaps another way to explain it is that this approach seeks to provide a nuanced understanding of how those localized and observable settings are conditioned, but also how they're also connected then by those globalized dynamics, which may or may not appear at first sight when you're in one particular site. So it really allows us to trace those processes and movements using qualitative methods. Let's use your recent research on the regulations surrounding performance enhancement in international sports as a way of better understanding how this method works. So what were your central research questions or, or did you have more of a guiding topic? You know, that's a really good question. And it's perhaps worth mentioning that my methodological approach actually forced me to modify the central research questions a bit, especially as I came to understand both the history and the rules themselves and how many different kinds of ways participants perceive them. So overall, at the start of the project, I really sought to look beyond kind of the media portrayals of doping and sport. When you think about those, they tend to be, you know, individuals who are criminalized or punished for, you know, cheating. And what I wanted to get at was a deeper understanding of the regulations targeting performance enhancement and what often gets referred to as fair play. So fair play being that idea of fair and level competition. So the project started with about three central questions. And that was first, how did the regulatory regimes around performance enhancement sport take shape and change over time? So this is that multi-sided interest in temporality. And then what social, technological, institutional, and ideological influences came to inform that development and its current formation? And then last, I really wanted to understand how these dynamics played out and became manifest in different stages of the anti-doping process. So this is like rulemaking, implementation, enforcement, and by enforcement, I mean something a little bit broader than just actual punishment, but actually how the rules help people understand anti-doping practices. So I really set out to explain a global system of rules in a way that was attentive to the range of actors involved. So not just the law and regulations on the books, but also the social, the historical influences, and then in turn how 
different participants actually negotiated the rules and the purpose. So it was a huge project in that way. But I was in the beginning, I thought those three questions could really organize it. With your interest both in this global regulation and also the actions of individual actors, it seems potentially overwhelming. So what was your methodological design for the project? Yeah, that that was actually really tricky at the onset. And a lot of people, when they talk about qualitative field work, they say, go out in the field, just see what happens, and then you'll refine as you go. And it, it really didn't lend to that kind of project because, I mean, I did do six years of field work, so maybe it did. So what I really want to do is hone in on the object. And the object, I think, for the in, in terms of inquiry was essentially the emergence and development of anti-doping regulation. So by focusing on that, it really helped me in terms of structuring the methodological design. So the first part was really the importance of tracing how earlier forms of regulation emerged. So those were formally sanctioned by the International Olympic Committee, both before and after they developed formal drug testing in the 60s. I really wanted to capture those dynamics as a particular point of reference. And then through archival work, I tried to trace up through the contemporary moment and then use interviewees who'd been involved in those processes to kind of work in the things that weren't captured in the text. So by doing a lot of the archival research first, I was able to help fill in the gaps and pose additional questions. Before we go on to talk about more of the uh, technical details of the methods, would you mind sharing some of your core findings or contributions? Yeah, no, of course. First... I think the research, or at least I hope it does, provide a deeper understanding of the processes behind the regulation of performance enhancement in sport. Too often we hear narratives about cheaters without critically considering how and why people are punished, who is not getting punished, and who is doing the sanctioning. And in the book I talk about, you know, a narrow focus on doping really doesn't capture the full nuance of all the regulations around fair play in sport. And so I don't want to suggest that people in the system don't dope per se, but I really wanted to show how and why the system came to be, what aspects of it work and perhaps don't work, what are the built-in inequalities of the system. And I think what the research does show is that the regulations we have reflect the broader corporatization of sport, which intersects with other forms of inequality as well as older ideals about sport being a kind of pure, uncontaminated field. And despite presenting as an objective field of regulation based on scientific testing and monitoring, it's actually colored by a number of different social beliefs. And then second, I really wanted to demonstrate two points about regulation because a lot of people aren't interested in regulation and, and you know, I don't blame them, but I, I am one of those people who is. Um, <laughs> So I think first I wanted to show that sport itself is a powerful, albeit sometimes overlooked form of regulation. You know, athletes, you know, you could argue are, are powerful symbols that really, really should be investigated and, and they're policed in distinctive ways from other citizens. And then that leads to a second point about sport and regulation and that by focusing on these different forms of rules, I think we can really glean insight into the power and plurality um, of regulation against the backdrop of globalization. So in this key case, we see differential treatment of citizens that aren't bound to national jurisdiction, but by these transnational private rules that we many of us don't even know about. When you were first designing this study, did you have the topic in mind and then you sought out any method that would help you get insight into this regulation process? Or was it more that you had an idea of how you wanted to do research and then you came upon a topic that would work for that approach? I'd have to say it was mostly topic, although it'd be a bit unfair to say or inaccurate to say that they didn't kind of go hand in hand because I was really set on doing something that merged my interest in critical theory and ethnography. 
But when I figured out the topic, I really realized that the design would basically require field work that went beyond one site. And that and that's really a challenge, I have to say, especially when you're a graduate student, when I, which I was when I started the project, because you really want to obtain that deeper understanding that you get from long-term immersion, especially when you're doing long-term field work in one community or one location. And so to, to do so, I really thought the project had to become you know, an integral part of my life for six years in order to make sure I had that level of immersion. Did you consider other methodological approaches then? Before I did the project itself, I did some pilot field work on the anti-doping regulations established by the California State Athletic Commission. So that's the governing body for combat sports in California. So mixed martial arts, boxing, and that really kind of opened my eyes to what kind of field work would be required. So I tried some, I did, I did quite a few interviews and observations in that setting. And while I got a really good understanding of the rules and how the procedures worked, without those additional ethnographic forms of engagement, you really didn't get the entire picture. And so it was that first fieldwork experience that made it clear to me, wow, I'm, only, I'm doing fieldwork in one site and it's going to require deeper engagement. If I'm going to do this globally, which is really my interest, I really have to find ways to immerse myself or I'm just really going to develop something that's, that's thin overall. In reading your book, it's clear that you're someone who cares about theory and some of your contributions are even at the theoretical level. So I'm wondering, how did your methodological choice fit with the theoretical framing of your questions? Actually, during the project itself, um, I think my theoretical concerns changed quite a bit as I became more immersed in the project and learned more about the dynamics I was engaging with. So it actually began as a study really rooted in socio-legal studies, particularly around concerns of legalized power, right? How does a regime like this that started as a private form of regulation and eventually became backed by international law, how did that become so powerful or at least so binding in people's everyday day lives. And then also I wanted to know questions about legal consciousness. So how do different actors understand regulation and then reflect and react to it? But it became really clear that given the complexity of what was going on in the project, and in part because it was across sites, law was just one of the regulatory instruments and not necessarily the most important in the eyes of many participants. So for example, athletes understand regulation through embodied engagement with other people, not through the rules or understanding the rules. And legal consciousness gives us some insight into that and how people understand authority, but doesn't capture everything that athletes are doing and how they get knowledge about these things. So I really had to step back and look at what was going on more broadly. And What I was finding, and this was across sites in New Zealand, in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, were that there were these fundamental concerns and and contested ideas about human ability, right? How do we police that? What, What is allowed? What is not quite natural, but how do we keep that natural element in sport? And so there was a much deeper contest over fundamental beliefs beyond the rules themselves that I wanted to capture. And so the theory really had to shift. Again, I'm really interested in the scope of the project and the potential for it to be overwhelming. So I was wondering, how did you actually go about collecting and accessing your data? And then on top of that, what was your sampling strategy to try to keep it more manageable? I guess the short answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Just go for everything. (laughs) Yeah, and it really, and and I'll explain why. And this could be a very long answer, and I'll try to keep it short. 
obviously I was using sampling strategies. You know, I wanted to get it particular people had knowledge. Um, I needed to use some snowball sampling in that just because when you're interviewing, so I interviewed a lot of global elites to get access to other global elites. Snowball sampling was absolutely essential. But and I found this early on by relying on snowball sampling a little too much around, especially around the elites. I kept hearing themes. I mean, a similar party line, I think you could call it, emerge. And so I really had to find different sampling strategies to get alternative perspectives, or at least some counter counter to what I was hearing. So in terms of sampling, that was one one way I had to be strategic. But overall, in a, in a practical sense, my aim was really to do anything I could, both ethically and physically speaking, to get at data. Um, just because there were or there could have been, I have to say, I didn't experience too many barriers, but there could have been significant barriers to gaining access to certain kinds of policymakers, for example, at the international level. I also was really fortunate that I was a competitive athlete throughout the study, um, and that really helped me maintain contacts and circles with other elite athletes and aspiring elite athletes. It also gave me firsthand, really actually autoethnographic experience um, and insight into anti-doping education in not one but two countries. Um, so that was a great comparative reference. And then last, I was also really lucky to have uh, a fellowship from the International Olympic Committee to do archival research. And that gave me access to documents that I really couldn't have accessed otherwise. And it also gave me an opportunity to be in Switzerland and interview people that had been working in those institutions. And then I also really found in New Zealand, for example, where I was doing some field work on both the athletes and the sports tribunal that was there um, adjudicating these matters, that people were really, really open to sharing what information they have, in part because very few people were doing firsthand research on it. So did you experience any other unexpected barriers or challenges? You know, as I said, I was really fortunate in the sense that there were few challenges, particularly in terms of access, because I was really sensitive that I was perhaps not going to get the access I, I would need for the study. Um, but there were a couple. The good thing about the barriers that did arise, I didn't, because I couldn't break them down, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to. Um, so, for example, when I was in California, I um, applied to be trained as a doping control officer in order to get a better sense of how they're trained and to get that perspective of the doping control process. So, just to explain, doping control officers are actually contractors that carry out the actual drug test, the actual testing, uh, the urine sample collection. And then they file it through a certain procedure so that it can be tested. So the process itself is very intrusive. Athletes have to essentially strip. The saying is from the nipple down if you talk in, in kind of local circles. So they're quite exposed. And it's something that I obviously couldn't observe as a field researcher. And to be honest, I wasn't that good of an athlete to actually be exposed to it myself. And I had all these stories from athletes talking about the embarrassing things that had happened to them in testing. Um, none of which I actually published in the book because I just thought they were really intrusive. Um, I, I allude to some of them, but I don't get into some, some of the gritty details. And in contrast, the doping control officers I was interviewing, they divulged nothing. They only talked about procedural elements, which, although that didn't give me a lot of detail, it did give me you know a lot of insight and in learning about their professional ethics, right? Like they were not going to talk to me about details. And so I thought... By at least being trained as one, I could get some insight into that process. Um, and that never came to fruition. And, you know, it would have been nice to have that deeper insight, especially because it's a book about embodied dynamics of regulation. 
So it seems like some groups were more willing to speak to you than other groups. Was there any pattern that emerged or that you picked up on, or was it more just on an individual basis? No, that's a great point. Um, There were some patterns, and they wouldn't be the ones that you would expect, I would say. So most global elite high-level policymakers were happy to speak. And in most cases, they had a very polished set of lines that they would give, which required then further investigation. So talking to more people, going to more informal activities to kind of see what other kinds of information I could get around those narratives that may not be the official party line. But the people that weren't talked were some of the more precarious figures in the anti-doping regulation. So not the athletes. Athletes, for the most part, were very forthcoming. Global policymakers at at the higher levels were very forthcoming. But people that were either low-level contractors like doping control officers or low-level regulators doing that kind of firsthand work, sport support staff, for example, they were very hesitant in a lot of cases. So it really required developing a rapport on a regular basis and even sitting in on the office and, and doing some of the work with them to get a better understanding of what they did. So once you had collected all your data, what did you actually do to it? How did you analyze it? Uh, maybe what techniques did you employ? Given that this was such a, it was a long project, it was data heavy. What I really wanted to do is make sure that I was deeply engaging with all the data that I had and to think through it um, both critically and reflexively as I went before actually starting formalized coding and things like that. So I guess the best way to describe my approach was kind of a, a crystallization and immersion approach. So in this way, in a real practical sense, I found myself taking a lot of notes about my data, as well as reflecting on my own positionality in shaping what I was seeing as emergent patterns. So the actual formal coding came much, much later in the process. And by that point, I had a good sense of some of the themes that were shaping up. So what I did is, is quite literally as I would spend every evening after transcribing my field notes, um, and depending on how late I was out, because as I mentioned, it did require going to some social activities with elites and things like that to get more information. Um, some, so sometimes the early mornings, I would basically find myself writing and rereading field notes in relation to the other texts that I had, or in relation to some of the pictures and videos I had taken, because I thought I really needed to have those forms of data as well to capture some of the embodied dimensions that were going on that I didn't capture very well in my written transcription. And so it was basically sometimes printing them out and putting them up against beside each other, sometimes just rereading and taking notes about connections between field note A and field note Z from a month prior, just to make sure I was reminding myself of previous encounters. And so I'd have to organize them by site. I'd have to also add preliminary codes on the front of my documents about what kind of actor this was, where did it take place, what were some of the core themes or, or topics that they focused on right in the front of the field set of field notes so that I could more easily start comparing what I had. When students are first taking research methods, they hear a lot about generalizability and validity. Did these factor into your project or were these concerns that you had when you were conducting the research? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And we don't usually speak about ethnography or, or fieldwork in terms of generalizability. But I actually think this approach, at least if it's done well, does lend some important explanations of the macro using a micro-level focus. So that's, 
that's not quite the same as generalizing findings. But and I have some colleagues at Regnet who've written about this a bit more. Um, John Braithwaite and Peter Drahosh in their book Global Business Regulation, which is kind of the bible of regulatory studies from a sociological perspective. And they really talk about, look, what we're doing is we're using historical and anthropological methods and adapting them in ways that can really speak to broader phenomenon. And so that's not generalizability, but it does help us see how this kind of work can also fit to inform, you know, other kinds of projects that might use qualitative, quantitative, or mixed methods approaches to a topic um, because they really offer that micro-level understanding and then reflect back on the macro. So does that mean you're looking at how power or regulation works in one particular site, but then because it's a larger force, it would also operate in that manner in other sites, and in that sense it's generalizable? Yeah, that's that's really close. I think that's a good way of putting it. And also, you know, it's seen, you know, in globalized spaces, not one... So, for example, if we want to study a global institution, that global institution doesn't just occupy one space, right? So the UN doesn't just exist in New York. You can't just observe that site to understand global lawmaking. And so it's not a a clear sense of generalizability, but it can shed light on dynamics that once we understand them, other kinds of methods could certainly probe further. I see. That makes a lot of sense. I guess in terms of validity... Um, and to be a bit more precise, I think I'm talking more about trustworthiness and credibility. Um, I could actually see how ethnographers who prioritize long engagement in one field site, which you know requires a tremendous amount of work and diligence, um, I could see how they would feel uncomfortable with multi-sided field work because it really requires a really proactive engagement in order to maintain the necessary level of engagement to justify immersion. In fact, there's no doubt that you miss things, especially early on in the field work. I mean, when I first, I'm really grateful I'd done that preliminary field work in California before doing field work at a conference in Spain. I had six months of field work underneath, under my belt. And then I went to a conference in Spain. And had I not had that experience, I would have missed. I mean, I did miss things, of course, because it was huge. But I really would have made a lot of mistakes that would have jeopardized core parts of the project had I not had some of that experience. And so actually, anthropologist um, Nancy Shepard Hughes has actually written about her own multi-sided field work. um, And she says it really demands a sacrifice of the normally, and she calls it leisurely pace of traditional ethnographic work. I don't know if I'd call it leisurely, but she's a lot more experienced than I am. And she, she reflects on the fact that it required her to work so much more quickly than traditional field work. So that's a a trade-off I'm willing to accept because I really thought it was necessary, or at least a multi-sided approach was necessary for the kinds of questions I had. And that said, because it is, I think it's safe to say it is faster than more traditional ethnographic work, you really can't blow your chances. So, I mean, I really had to prepare myself before doing interviews. I mean, I was asking everyone who I knew was an experienced researcher about their strategies and techniques how to, you know, maintain an honest rapport with participants during exchange, but also making sure that I was eliciting enough information from them. I mean, I really had to get a toolkit of strategies prepared before going out into the field. And had I done a more traditional project um, in terms of just going to one site, I don't know if I would have done that legwork up front. Another often discussed idea when you're teaching research methods is the positionality of the researcher. And this seems particularly significant for the work that you were doing, um, and you alluded to this before. So how did the idea of positionality play a part in the research process or design? 
I definitely had to straddle and negotiate insider and outsider status on a regular basis. Having been an athlete, having been a sport administrator, having worn those hats myself. And I I certainly didn't want to project my own experiences onto what others were doing. But I do think that past experience made me attentive to things that maybe some others who hadn't had that experience would be aware of. And, and also I have to, it's really, I think it's really important to reflect on being a U.S. researcher, and I think a lot of other American researchers, when they go overseas to do field work, are aware of this. Is is like, for example, when I was doing field work in New Zealand, you know, I was not only living with a Samoan family, but I was doing regular interviews and interacting with a lot of Maori and Pacific Island at, Islander athletes, and I, and I still do in in Australia as well. And at a very fundamental level a lot of those cultural worldviews are distinctly different. So, you know, if you speak to a Pacific Islander athlete, they see themselves in a set of broader relationship and, kins- and kinship networks. I mean, and there's no doubt that I see myself in this individualistic and autonomous way. And so at a very core level, I was actually, I could say, nervous about how I was interpreting some of those interactions. And had I not had interlocutors like the very generous Samoan family that I lived with, talking me through critically some of these, you know, really cultural nuances that I was clearly aware of having read about them, but had not experienced them like the depth I did in New Zealand. Had I not had those people checking me, even a reflexive attempt at positionality, I think would have misrepresented them in some fundamental ways. I mean, of course, the practice of representing people is always a precarious endeavor in ethnography, and it takes on different dimensions. But in this case, I really... In some cases, I really had to reflect on interlocutors quite quite significantly. When you were conducting the research or, or during the writing process, did you have a particular audience in mind and did that shape what you were doing? Yeah, this is, this is actually a great question. I very deliberately tried to write a book that while even though it's theoretically engaged and, and ethnographically engaged, I wanted to make it as accessible as I could for an upper-level undergraduate audience um, because I wanted to make the book something that would appeal beyond academia, at least if someone who was educated had an interest in the topic, and and even not educated, to be honest, though I think they'd be pretty bored about my discussions of biological citizenship. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that was certainly not as as easy a task as I had hoped. Um, In fact, I think I had three different ways that I wanted to present the narrative of the book, all around the same thesis regarding citizenship and the policing of its boundaries in a globalized context. But I think the one that I en- ended up using was the, ons- the probably the most accessible one. And so that I always had that in the back of my mind in terms of data analysis and, you know, reciting pieces of the work to other people to get their feedback to see if, you know, it was something that would resonate with them. And, and really, as a result, I've had to reserve some of the research for articles and targeted, targeted journals for specialist readers. Reflecting back on the research project as a whole... What would you say were the limitations of the methodological approach that you chose? The limitations is probably pretty evident that this could result in a really thin description, especially compared to other ethnographic work. The time commitment is significant, but you aren't in a particular site at all times. So you really have to create opportunities for access that may otherwise emerge more organically with sustained field work in that particular spot, at least. In fact, if you if you look at the book that I've just written, while I think it's thick in terms of a description, 
its description, I don't think it necessarily reads like a traditional ethnography, and I don't really think it could, to be honest. Some of the other limitations that I did not think through, um, I didn't think through the risks of being a female field worker um, among global elites, to be honest. We talk about risk to participants a lot. We talk about risks in conflict-ridden areas, but rarely do we talk about some of the risks that can be that can be involved in those kinds of spaces. And I, I'll say everyone that I interviewed that I would classify as a global elite was very ethical, very approachable, never threatening, never concerned. But and I mentioned this earlier, if you're doing field work on globalized, you know, rulemaking to really get at the politics of that, you have to go to informal activities, social activities, other forms of engagement beyond the actual conference structures. And there's no doubt that there were um, people in attendance at those places that did not have good intentions and, and created, you know, a real tension of, I want to be here to get inf more information. But to be honest, I really have to think through the safety implications of this. And this is coming from someone that has 20 years of combined experience in mixed martial arts and rugby. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think it's something to take very seriously when someone as a young field worker is going out into the field. I mean, it's not just women that would go through this. I mean, there's other kinds of risks that can emerge. And it's something I did not think through critically. Are there any particular practical details or, or tricks of the trade maybe related to the limitations that you could share for, say, there's someone who wants to embark on a project using this type of approach? Yeah, absolutely. And it might actually come in the form of advice more than anything. In general, I would say this is this approach is one of the a few ways you can get in-depth information about transnational objects or phenomenon, especially when we think about how different sites make up international spaces and that you can't really be in one space to get at some of these globalized, especially around globalized dynamics, especially around regulation and lawmaking and rulemaking and things like that. I will say it was absolutely essential that I had done a, a significant amount of field work. I mean, I had been at the California State Athletic Commission, for example, for six months before I started embarking on this actual project. And while that early data from the California State Athletic Commission is not as robust as what was in the book, it was an incredible learning experience. That said, there are a lot more resource, resources out there about multi-sided ethnography or multi-sided field work. And I distinguish the two a bit because multi-sided field ethnography certainly comes out of anthropology. And I would say many other disciplines engage in multi-sided fieldwork in ways that don't reflect that particular tradition in anthropology. And I, there's a lot more resources out there. Um, when I first started, there was really only a reader on globalized assemblages, and now there's entire methods books dedicated to multi-sided research. Um, in addition, um, some researchers have actually mapped out ways to think through individual case sites within a broader multi-sided project. So one example of that is vertical case studies. And so I really think that combination of prepping those with those fieldwork methods books and then actually carrying out fieldwork in a more traditional sense kind of can give you that foundational basis to think through how you have to adapt your tools once you start bridging out into other sites. Yeah, and from listening to you talk about this, it's really clear how important it is to have a very specific plan of what you're going to do in comparison. So I've, I've conducted ethno ethnographic work and I really didn't have to have as many strategies in place. It kind of was just wandering into the field and seeing what would happen. 
And then, and I think that can be, I don't want to make that sound like my task was harder than yours because I think what you, you know, an in-depth ethnography has so many things you have to think through during the process and as you're analyzing your data as well, that by having a targeted focus in a multi-sided project, you may not engage. But I, I do think having one object and tracing it in a multi-sided sense actually helps you stay close to what you're doing and, and organized in terms of sticking to a design. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as a final question, reflecting back on your project, imagining you're in front of that undergraduate class we first talked about, what would be the main advantages or selling points that you would bring up to them and say, you know, this is a useful approach. Here's why you might want to consider it. I mean, I think this approach, and, and it's similar to my last response, so I'm sorry if I sound redundant. This is a way of understanding global phenomenon that we know affect us in our everyday lives, but we don't always see it. Uh, and that to me is actually really exciting to know as someone who does in-depth field work that I can still make bigger claims about you know, very powerful actors or even not so powerful actors um, using my methodology, which you know, we as ethnographers don't always go to those spaces of global power. Um, and I think it's a really exciting and important time to be doing that kind of work, given you know, what we've seen happen at both global and national levels. Um, and so if I were speaking to an undergraduate class, I would say, look, this is an opportunity to develop a really unique skill set, but also engage really important questions in a different and important way. That's great. Thank you for joining us today. No, thank you. It was great chatting. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance. Thank you.